Welcome to The Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, you'll listen to journalist and social commentator David Marr while he talks to Guardian Australia's political editor Catherine Murphy about her new quarterly essay, The End of Certainty, Scott Morrison and Pandemic Politics. In the essay, Catherine goes behind the scenes to tell the story of Australia's response to the COVID crisis and what it has revealed about the nation. Of course, as we're still here in the midst of the crisis, this was a live event recorded over the internet, which means there's been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. But now, over to the event's host, Reading's Programming Manager, Chris Gordon. Talking of storytellers, talking of commentators, talking of people that have considered who we are and why we are, I'd like to introduce you to David Marr, who's Areas of expertise cover law, Australian politics and censorship. You know him because you read him, you know him because you hear him and you know that he speaks our truth. He's going to be in conversation with Catherine Murphy. It's a great pleasure to hand over this Zoom event to you, David. Imagine if we were in a hall, David, everyone would be cheering. They might even be standing on their seats at this stage. I would be so embarrassed by that. Um, <laughs> said no, said no, David Marr ever. <laughs> I'm talking tonight to my colleague, Catherine Murphy, and my career at The Guardian, such as it is, one of the pleasures of it has been to work with Catherine Murphy and, of course, to read her, um, because I think she's just about the best political commentator in this country, especially for doing something that very few commentators do. She takes us into the way she thinks. She takes us through the path of her thinking, which she does in this beautiful quarterly essay all the time. Um, she's very funny as well. And <laughs> she has this gentleness that is, ladies and gentlemen, a complete lie. This woman is not gentle at all. She's broken. Um, Catherine. You and I both love quarterly essays. Um, I've written a few. This is your first. This is um, my first. Yes. It's not quite the essay that you thought you were writing when you began. What happened? Yeah. Well, we, we started, David, and thank you for that uh, wonderfully generous introduction and, and obviously for everybody assembled here, welcome. Thank you for coming. And uh, know that I feel as passionately about David as he does about me and my my alleged gentleness, obviously. So we need we just need to do that first. Uh, yes, we we did start on a different path uh, when I was commissioned to do this essay. It was originally intended to be a profile of Morrison, just just a lengthy profile of the Prime Minister. But uh, when COVID hit, the essay subject. The Correct. Minister. The Prime Minister. This unstudied uh, man, as you call him. Yeah, well, he is, he is unstudied. He, he, he is. And part of the reason he's unstudied is he's, he's very difficult to get a handle on. Uh, but anyway, I'm sure we'll get there. But yeah, look, we did start uh, from the traditional Prime Minister uh, quarterly profile. When uh, COVID hit, uh, we thought we needed we needed those events. We needed to uh, go in a, in a narrative sense uh, to put together 
the the elements of of the story of the of the first wave, in essence, the first wave of this pandemic, because uh, I thought that. Uh, you know, a minute ago we said that Morrison's unstudied and I said because he is quite difficult to get a handle on. My objective in the piece became to try and capture the Prime Minister in flight. Yes. Uh, these, these, are, these are really important events that we're living through. They're really profound events. Obviously, it's just a statement of the obvious. Um, I thought that if I could capture Morrison implementing his response to these events then we could we could it's sort of like capturing something on a screen you can you can you can freeze him you can turn him around every which way and then try and draw some conclusions about what you see and i also i mean old-fashioned as it is uh i thought actually recording this history is act is really important because some really profound things have happened over the last few months and so much will be written about this pandemic everything from phd theses about governance to sort of ripping narrative journalism tales about what happened and why and when and who was involved uh, but it just particularly at the start some really interesting nuanced uh, things happened and i wanted to try and give the protagonists an opportunity to narrate some of those events in their own voice and also for me then to pick up this story and then start to pull it apart and see what we could conclude. Because this is probably the most overreported event in the history of journalism. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay, I'm just going to interrupt very, very quickly, darling, and just ask you to speak up as loud as you can, almost yell it out to the people of Australia if you could, darling. <laughs> yell, yell, yell. Yelling is never a problem with me. It's about... <laughs> All right. Um, but this, this essay to me is a compelling example of here is something we're so familiar with we can almost barely not listen on the news yes. to yes. get more about it. But it is... Finding the narrative makes sense of the events and to talk as you've done to, to principal players and how they came to their first decisions. And there's this wonderful sense I think you were aiming for of however much we know about the pandemic now, we have to remember that the big decisions were made quite largely on guesswork. Yes, yes, yes. And that was that was hunch. really, yeah, hunch. And I, I say in the piece that, uh, strangely, it would have been so easy to miss this event, even though it now looms so large in our lives, we've almost forgotten what it's like to, to not be in it. Uh, right at the start, given where Morrison was at, he was coming out of the tail end of the bushfires, which he obviously mishandled in full public view, spectacularly. Uh, when, spectacularly, when when Parliament resumed, uh, it resumed with this thunderclap where the Nationals just had a giant tantrum uh, and sort of all stormed at their leader, Michael McCormack, uh, to, to no result. Uh, Morrison was also in the middle of the sports grants fiasco. Uh, it, this was a seriously busy extended guy and extended government 
and they could have quite easily missed the onset of this pandemic, but they didn't. But, uh, but as you say, David, it's not like uh, there are a set of rules or a set of perfect information that one can apply in these circumstances. Uh, you, get, you get all the inputs, but at the end of the day, you have to make decisions based on imperfect information. And Morrison references this in his conversation with me in the essay that this is this is a genuine difficulty and and but that's at the core of government. It is the art of making decisions with imperfect information. It's at the core of leadership too, isn't it? Because one of the great qualities of a leader is judgment. Yeah. And I think it's one that's overlooked. In so many profiles, biographies of, of current leaders. This knack for judgment, which can't really be sourced or analysed or dissected, but do you have judgment? Mm. Um, but do you come away from the sight of Morrison in action mm. convinced this man has judgment? I think he, uh, well, it's, it's variable. It is, it's actually variable, but I think he does have very sharp instincts, if, which is sort of what you said a minute ago, that, it's, that the decisions are partly instinct. Uh, I think he does have quite sharp instincts, although he doesn't get it right all the time. I think what enabled them to make better judgments in this crisis, at, at, particularly at the start, was the benefit of the bushfires. Uh, there's, there's a piece in the, in the essay, there's a reflection from Christian Porter uh, where he said that the Cabinet, because of the mishandling of the bushfires, there was this hypervigilance in the Cabinet about uh, not, not making that error again, not yeah. Yeah. finding themselves stranded by a major event and unable to position themselves in it. Uh, and so I think they were assisted by having mishandled the first feder federated crisis. Of and the they year. weren't going to make that same mistake. They, they weren't going to make that same mistake. And uh, and perhaps, the, you know, I guess it's all a question of emphasis, isn't it? I mean, you know, perhaps in the rush to not make that same mistake may have resulted in over-engineering. Um, in this crisis compared to the first. But uh, I think, yeah, it's kind of multifactorial. Morrison's got good instincts. Often he has good judgment, but not always. And I think the people around him uh, were, as let's just give it to Porter, were hypervigilant after the bushfires and, and absolutely determined that whatever this new thing was, that it, wouldn't, that it wasn't going to be a cock-up. Can I contrast the two crises and suggest that for the bushfires, one of the problems, one of the political problems for the government was the verdict of the experts. Mm. But in this crisis, in the coronavirus crisis, there was no political downside to listening to the experts. Yes, yes, yes. Well, that's exactly right because... The expert advice or, well, the, the, the subject that the Prime Minister couldn't broach in the first crisis was, of course, climate change. 
uh, and uh, that that <laughs> that was part of what uh, sort of rendered it, he had this strange paralysis during the bushfires. It was more than climate, but climate was at the root of it. It was sort of it was obviously a subject that couldn't be ignored, but he had no language for how one could speak about climate change safely without being immediately <coughs> set on by by the colleagues right so that was that was certainly part of it climate definitely and experts you're right experts in the first fraught experts in the second easier because obviously the liberal party hasn't had a civil war over epidemiology or at least not yet, not yet. So, so so that was uh that you're right that there was um, there was a there was a clearer pathway to accepting expertise in the second than in the first, but it was also um, the, the, it was it was also I think learning in a different way from the bushfires again. Part of Morrison's problem in the bushfires, apart from the fact that he couldn't speak about climate change without being beset by mad people, was that there was nothing to do in his head, right? That yes. the premiers the premiers are responsible for emergency management. They send out the fire trucks, they they they, they do all that bizzo. And he um, can't himself hold a fire hose. And he can as he said famously, I don't hold I don't hold a hose, mate, right? So the Prime Minister was kind of a bit bereft because he is a doer. That is that is how he that 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 is his political personality. So when the second federated crisis came around, which was the pandemic, I think he really resolved that he would not be in this sort of semi-impotent position again, that he would create a governance structure that, that literally put him in the centre of the action, that, that appointed him the Prime Minister of the Premiers, and that's what happened. They created this emergency yeah. government of nine, right? And again, that, that was part of him learning from the first experience, that... Uh, that he was not going to be in a position again where the states would have all of the control of the issue and and he would be rendered a bystander and an awkward bystander to boot. And by listening to the experts and setting up a national structure for, for addressing this crisis, Australians saw perhaps something quite unfamiliar to them, which was a government taking effective action and putting aside, at least for a time, partisan um, playground fights. Yep. And getting on with it effectively. Yes. And this is not something I remember seeing in Australia for a very long time. No, exactly. It, it was, it, and that's why I went, this is getting back to that point about recording the history. Why not just do a profile of Morrison? Why delve into the the most overreported event of the century? Well, because important things happened in those months. Really important things happened, and they 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 created or there was this wonderful rapprochement that happened between a political class that had shown every sign over the last decade of being dysfunctional busted ass, right, this our political yes. class, right, not to put too fine a point on it. Um, we had this event where governments rallied, they, they, set, they, they set down the tribalism for a period of time, uh, they looked at evidence, 
They work methodically through the evidence to all two solutions. Um, they prevented, they presented to the Australian people as broadly competent, astonishing, who knew? Um, uh, collab <laughs> collaborative, right? Collaborative. Yep. Willing um, to admit mistakes. Willing to admit mistakes. Like this was a very profound thing that happened in our in our collective experience. And one of the really fascinating things that we tracked at The Guardian because we, we run the essential poll data and during the, the crisis we ran a poll every week and we, I actually saw it come back. I saw trust come back. Yeah. Uh, and, that, and that was really in the Australian context. Now, Catherine, there's a, there's a slight problem. Can you hear me? I, alas, can't hear anybody or anything at the moment, and yet it's telling me that I should be able to. My IT expert happens to be just to my left here. That, <laughs> Can you I, hear I've got you Can again. You Beautiful. Yes, I've got, I've got you again. So, I mean, trust in government is this extraordinary thing, as, as we know, that collapsed under... Kevin Rudd, yeah, um, collapsed when he turned away from doing anything effective about global warming, yeah, and has continued to collapse ever since. And here yep. we have this crisis, government acting. Do you think it was a time when suddenly people? I mean, I know it was true of me. Started to think, well, if government in this country can actually do something, <laughs> <laughs> then maybe it could do something about. And a long list of things which in the last decade governments have studiously refused to do anything about. Yes. Well, wouldn't that be marvellous if that wouldn't happened? Wouldn't that be marvellous? Yes. Um, global warming would go back on that list. But it seems to me that you capture this beautiful moment in the quarterly essay when there seems to have been a profound shift in Australian government and trust. But do you sense that it's going to last? Mm, um, so I would love to. Uh, I would. I would love to be uh, ebullient about this. I would love to be brimming with optimism, uh, because God knows we could we could use some optimism. Um, but uh, sadly, already I think we uh, we're seeing reversions to type all around the place. Uh, we've sort of reached a point in the crisis where. Um, where we are reverting to, to business as usual. We've seen this particularly over the last month or so in this uh, sort of proxy war, then actual war between Scott Morrison and Daniel Andrews, the most interesting relationship in the Federation. And uh, the Prime Minister tells me in the essay, the key fusion in the Federation, um, sadly, the key fusion is looking a, a little bit unfused um, at this point in time. But it, it's sort of not just as simple as uh, Daniel Andrews and Scott Morrison have, have fallen out and now it's toys out of the, out of the cot and, and it's all kind of horrendous again. Um, I think the problem is, uh, I guess the, the, one of the implicit questions in the essay is how long can a Prime Minister set down ideology how long yes. can that happen how long can the leader of an established major party set down ideology in favor of practical problem solving 
that that is that's the, that's the key question for me. Um, and and uh, the the evidence suggests uh, possibly not for that long. Um, you see uh, Morrison now starting to be uh, sort of buffeted by a whole bunch of cross currents. There's the dynamic in the government where where the government is now asserting to the prime minister uh, you are not the prime minister of the premiers you are the prime minister of of us the liberal yes. and national parties uh and we have a bunch of views about what does or does not happen in a crisis and who might be to blame in the event that everything goes pear-shaped i.e not us it's that daniel andrews that needs to yes. wear the lion's share of the blame so you see that happening. You also see uh, normal election cycles because obviously we've got to run a state elections coming up. Uh, Queensland in the, and, and we've had one in the Northern Territory. We're having one in the ACT um, where state premiers are also playing to their own constituencies and, and are being pulled away from this government of national unity because sort of partisan weight is coming to bear on them as well. So. Um, so when does when when does the Guardian next poll trust? Uh, well, that's uh, well funny. Funny you may say that, David. You, uh, if people read the Guardian tomorrow, they may see some new figures about <laughs> oh, it. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Um, Catherine, I don't want to be personal, um, but how many prime ministers have you reported? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yes, let's bring my age into this. No, I'm I not, did. I, no, I started. I'm, talking, I'm just going to your expertise, no, not your authority. I'm not at all offended by my age. No, um, uh, I, ha uh, I had two weeks of Paul Keating when I started as a very baby journalist. I literally turned up in the last two weeks of Paul Keating before that election. Uh, so I have had. So everybody from then. Yes, I've had John is Howard, through to the current bloke. Is yeah. this man the hardest to read of all of those men and women? Yeah, by a considerable margin. Yeah. Why? Um, uh, partly because uh, I, I do borrow from Gertrude Stein in the piece and I say there's no there there. It is, um, it, it's partly because uh, he is at his core... Um, this this hybrid of a prime minister and a campaign director, uh, which is which is not w what we've had in the prime ministership in Australia in my reporting lifetime. It's partly because yeah, that you cannot identify, or at least I can't. I'll, I'll be fascinated if anyone in the audience can. And I devoted quite a lot of thinking to this as I was writing the piece. I tried to identify that the hill Scott Morrison would die on politically. Yes. And you could, for all of the previous prime ministers, I can identify a hill. Uh, for for this for this fellow, I, I can't now uh, because you know the way he comes at politics is not from the point of view that the Liberal Party has a set of values that I am a custodian of, and I will project to Australian voters. Scott Morrison believes in, I guess he, he's a populist at heart. He, he thinks the age of politicians imposing their values on the community in, in this sort of grand narrative about reform, uh, he thinks that's done. He, he, do, he, he does not think yes. that that 
can happen anymore. Therefore, governing now in 2020 is about understanding the problems the public wants solved and getting about solving those problems. Now, that's Except, not the... of course, for the problem of having in your own party an ideological bloc that does not want a number of those problems solved. No, well, this is this is the intriguing thing uh, that obviously, uh, you know, it, I don't, in, in sort of presenting this picture of Scott Morrison as this kind of uber-pragmatist, I don't want to convey to people that I think that he's not partisan because he is. He's absolutely, he's blue team to the core, this guy. Um, I also don't want to suggest that he is entirely devoid of ideology because we can see it across the pandemic response as well as uh, on the issues that you correctly identify the Liberal Party has trouble talking about, right? But I just think left to his own devices, the Prime Minister is a problem solver, not, not someone who is sort of brimming with any particular ideology. Um, so that that makes him different. It uh, he is he is yeah he he's he is different from all of his predecessors in that respect. But I suggest there's another thing that makes him different, which is that there's no kind of story of Morrison. Mm. There was a story of Keating and a story of of Howard and you know suburban solicitor. There was a story. God knows, of Kevin Rudd, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the Mandarin scholar who's come down from the, from the north to be our, you know, to be our leader. There mm. was definitely a story about Gillard. And Abbott mm. is all story and no achievement. Yeah, he is all there's story. There's this curious lack of story about this man. Yes, but this, but this is deliberate. I honestly believe this is deliberate. And it's sort of one of the reasons I find him really fascinating as a political figure. He sort of... Um, he the more you the more you look, the less you see. Almost, it's it, he has this reflective quality. It's sort of like he he sort of deliberately absents himself from the from the transaction. It's like uh, you know what what people see as a manifestation of their own desires in a way it's uh, like I know this probably sounds insane to people listening but but I honestly believe this to be true and he tamps down the story see he, he sort of dialed up his own story during the election campaign David we had a little bit of a, a, we a saw into Morris his and, church, for instance, yes briefly. exactly yes we saw into his church uh, we saw this sort of um, avuncular suburban dad type product that that and Jen and the girls, uh, we we saw a bit of that, um, but again, it's sort of it's very uh, it, it's very recessed. He doesn't he doesn't want a blockage between um, the, the voters and and what voters might want to project upon him as a prime ministerial figure. I think. What do so, you think um, of Oh well, it, I wish I wish he I wish he'd engaged. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm terrifying. I don't know. Um, uh, I really, I, re I really. There's a there's a piece anyway for folks who haven't read the essay yet. Uh, there is a piece uh, about Morrison and his faith, because uh, I wanted to go there because, in part, as a counterpoise to this idea that I was presenting this prime minister 
who was that there was no there there that yeah. a, a pragmatist yes. a person devoid of convictions because that's not right uh, the the prime minister uh, believes in God his faith is very very important to him uh, it connects him to the people who he is closest to it forms a community and a hinterland for him and also a connection point with some voters um, so I wanted to engage him on what his on on what faith is for him uh, I grew up in uh, in the Catholic Church and <laughs> faith was faith was about suffering and doubt right um, it, but but Scott Morrison to me he's obviously grown up in a Pentecostal tradition which is not not my world I don't I don't understand Pentecostal traditions not having grown up in one um, I suspect He's very certain about his faith. I suspect he's very literal in his beliefs. And I, I, I wanted to draw him out, not, uh, not as some exercise in entrapment, but because faith is so important to this man. And if we understand more about Scott Morrison's faith, I think we'll understand more about our Prime Minister and the way he sees the world and the way he processes information. Uh, we had a very cordial conversation for this essay and he gave me some generalities about faith, mm. um, but he did not want to engage on on this question at all. He said to me, I can't remember the exact set, uh, phrase, but it was something like, I don't parade it or I don't make a... Yeah. a but you have to a, say that. You, I mean, the, the last person... Um, but, mm, it's interesting, isn't it, that of the last three or four prime ministers we've had, faith has been this very big issue for them. Yeah. Huge issue with Kevin Rudd. Remember his press conferences he would hold? Outside the outside, church. Outside the church on Sunday. Yes. Outside the lich gate of St John's. Yes. It um, yes, indeed. Yes. And, and then Tony Abbott, of course, Mr. Faith. Um, very, very, yes. That, well, that, that, <laughs> that faith I recognise. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one. Yeah. So we had the Anglicans, we've had the Catholics, now we've got yes. the Pentecostals. Yes, um, yes. Can I take you to task for something I think you do, which is really cruel? Um, <laughs> and that is approach the Prime Minister with respect. Um, and I think that the damage you do to this man by being quiet, respectful and attentive to him, not shouting, not raging about him, but analysing who he is and how he operates um, is damage that perhaps will never be repaired. Oh, um, <laughs> I think that's an overstatement. I do, uh, I, do, um, I do approach him quietly and I approach him in the way that he approaches the world, which is in an, a highly attuned and observant way. Uh, one thing you wouldn't know about Scott Morrison if you just get the glimpses, uh, you get the packages on the television, uh, is uh, is how attentive this guy is. Uh, how how yes, you make that point. How he's a aware watcher. He, he's a watcher. He is absolutely a watcher, uh, and he can read a room. Not all not all politicians can, uh, but he is very attentive, in my experience, anyway, of of his surroundings. Um, he, he makes judgments very quickly, very intuitively. Uh, I, I say at one point in the essay, it's sort of like I wonder whether it's the policeman's gaze uh, or the son of the policeman's gaze. His father, John, was a policeman, a New South Wales policeman, before he was a local councillor. 
uh, later in life. And um, I'd speculate at one point whether this is this is the policeman's gaze that's been sort of modelled to the sun, that you, you've got to learn very quickly what side of the line your opponent is on, whether they're on your side or another side. Um, I look, I don't know. It's a bit of whimsy, really. But uh, look, yeah, I would prefer to phrase it in, in, in that way, David, that I yeah. approach the Prime Minister in the way that the Prime Minister I liked approaches it. the world. I liked it very much. I liked I liked the quiet of it very much because it allowed us to to look to the detail and see the man um, clearly. He's a great one of his great skills. I think I don't know what you think of this. Is not answering the question. He is a <laughs> phenomenal non-answerer. <laughs> oh God, yes. It's it, well. It's very. Uh, it's very taxing for us uh, who who are showing up every day in Canberra. He's uh, he he doesn't mind questions being asked. He just minds answering them. Um, yes, yes. That's, that's, <laughs> we find this again and again. Although he can sort of sometimes confound you and 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 answer a question, but mostly not. And particularly, uh, you know, there's uh, his if he if he doesn't want to answer you're not getting an answer. It wouldn't matter if you, you know, sort of set your hair on fire or whatever performance you put on, you're not getting an answer. It's just, it's just blank. Uh, today, I gather, I wasn't in the office today, but uh, my dear colleague, Paul Carp, who has been relentless and wonderful on the sports grant story yes. and has been attempting to uh, get a question up in a press conference, the last couple of press conferences about the latest information in relation to sports grants. I gather the Prime Minister turned on his heel and left. Uh, so and and he he has shut me down in press conferences in the past. Um, so he yeah, if he shut doesn't... me down. <laughs> so if he doesn't want to answer, it's it's very difficult to to get an answer. Uh, I mean, he's not Robinson Crusoe there, of course, as a political figure. Um, but but he uh, he certainly uh, yes, he certainly won't answer a question that he doesn't want to answer. Is it time for journalists to start to work together to compel answers? And when one journalist is fobbed off, instead of the next journalist going on to some other issue, mm. it's it happened once or twice in the White House press room and it's enormously powerful, but it seems not to happen here. Yeah. It, look, it does every now and again. I, I can remember in one instance uh, asking, it was during one of the asylum uh, policy debates. Oh, it was a medivac. It was about the Medivac legislation. I asked the, the prime minister said something that wasn't factual, and uh, and well, just wasn't wasn't yes, wasn't true. Yes. Um, and uh, and I I pulled him up on it, uh, and uh, and he didn't. You know, he he became quite frustrated, obviously, with the dynamic. And I thought, oh well, that'll be that. But, uh, but a couple of my colleagues, David Spears and someone else, uh, picked up immediately afterwards and, and pursued it. Uh, and I was really grateful for that because I wasn't intending to make a scene. I just didn't, I just don't think it's right if prime ministers aren't factual in their answers. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, but you're right, it happens, uh, it happens more infrequently than it should. Uh, I don't really know why. I think... Probably because uh, there's a bit of a mindset that may have developed uh, from the days where press conferences were not all that frequent. We're in a we're in some strange circumstances at the yes, moment where press, 
they, they are now happening all the time. But uh, I think uh, possibly the mentality uh, sort of extends to the pre-pandemic era where uh, prime ministers may not appear that frequently. So if you've got a question to answer, you've got you've one got to shot. Grab at that it, opportunity. Right? You've got to grab it. So I, I don't know. I haven't thought about this deeply, but I suspect possibly there's a bit of that in in this, rather than sort of uh, you know just sort of being obtuse or failing to assist colleagues in need. I think possibly we we journalists can get a little bit obsessive in our focus and are not always that attentive Look, to the dynamics around us. Putting it nice. One of the little doors, one of the, the quiet, sorry, not little, but one of the quiet doors you opened for me in this essay was the observation that this man doesn't really like Parliament. Mm. Yeah, really doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> really Explain. doesn't. Explain. Yes. Well, it's sort of fascinating, again, because it does mark him out uh, from uh, other prime ministers. I don't think Kevin Rudd loved Parliament, to be frank. I don't think he hated it. But I don't think he loved it either, to be honest. Um, I think Julia Gillard did. Um, I, I never detected any sort of uh, particular derision on Malcolm Turnbull's part about Parliament. Uh, Keating, well, obviously. Howard, well, obviously. It's sort of, you know, what gets them out of bed in the morning, uh, that whole kind of bare pet theatrics. And it's kind of fascinating about Morrison because he is, um, you know, he's, 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 quite, he's obviously a very forceful guy. Right, he is yes. he is that forceful person. He's a forceful not, presence in Parliament. He is, and it's not like he doesn't, you know, it's not like he sort of avoids conflict. Uh, so, so it's genuinely strange. I think it's just that the Prime Minister does not like constraints. Uh, he likes to be able to set his own agenda on his own terms. He likes latitude. He likes he likes room to move. Um, and and Parliament is just gravity. Parliament is it, it imposes weights on prime ministers. There are there are rituals in the day that, that that burn up time. Time you could be doing something else. You've got to sit there and prep for question time. Um, and and the whole kind of the, the the perform the performative element of the chambers. It's just it is all gravity and. Um, and this prime minister is always packed for flight. Yes, and he can't just turn on his heel and leave question time if things well, get tough. Well, you can't. It's sort of you've you've just got to endure that. And and look, he is. Uh, uh, you know, I don't know if this comes out in the essay or not. He's he has a ferocious work ethic. He is a very hard worker, uh, and uh, so it's not it's not that uh, you know he doesn't like the work. I think he doesn't like the constraint. And uh, and there's no there is no easy departure as you say it's not like if you if you just had enough of this if you if you really don't want the thirty eighth question on aged care or whatever it is sports or sports whatever yeah. you, you can't just nick off or change the subject you, you're there and you've got to possess yourself with the patience in order to get through those moments. And, uh, you know, and I, I don't think he enjoys it particularly much. Mm. Catherine, I wonder how durable this man is. And I ask that question because um, in the past, quarterly essays 
um, have often marked the doom of a leader. I was going to say, um, the curse. Oh, goodness. Uh, there's a curse of the quarterly essay, and, mm. and, I'm, and I'm not sure that, you know, my quarterly essay on Kevin Rudd, um, and he survived 10 days. Um, <laughs> uh, your quarterly essay on this man has just been published. Yes. A fortnight or three weeks? <laughs> I put it. I put. Uh, I put his survival longer than ten days. Uh, I don't. I don't sense uh, any sort of imminent uh, crowding in on the prime minister. Although I understand the risk and and the curse, it is a bit terrifying. Um, no, but but the, he's not. Uh, we're, we're not in that scenario. But we are now. Um, uh, we are in a different uh, phase of this pandemic. Where I think I said a minute or two ago. There are all of these cross currents um, starting to uh, buffet Morrison. I mean, he's, he's there, he's implacable and forceful and all of the things he generally is. But there's all of these complexities now. There's, uh, there's the record, there's what you've actually done in the pandemic yeah. that people can measure you against. There's the expectations of colleagues uh, who I think I said a minute ago don't want him to be Prime Minister of the Premiers. They want him to be the front man of the firm, which is the Liberal and National Parties. That's, that's in evidence. Um, there is this obvious sort of blame shifting going on between the Commonwealth and the states. Everybody wants to own the success. No one wants to own the failures um, in governance in this period. So it's sort of, you know, that, uh, that, that concept of gravity we were talking about a minute ago with the parliament, that, that sense of waiting. Uh, there's, there's sort of more weight now uh, sort of being yeah. applied to the Prime Minister than at any other point in the crisis. So I think, and obviously what he does now, how he sort of uh, moves out of this period that we've been in and and, and frames the, the whole conversation ahead of the budget and after the budget, I mean, that's really where where the where the definition of centre-right politics is, is going to be formed. What is centre-right politics in 2020? Well, that's that's really what we're going to discover over the next six months, um, whether it can be all kind of transactions and pragmatism and whatever it takes in the moment, or whether there is a reversion to the enterprise, to the collective enterprise of, of Liberal Party politics in Australia. And one senses, one senses that we're limbering up for, um, you know, some, some yes. Well, that. I mean... It's always a good time to cut taxes. You would agree with me, <laughs> and it seems to be a particularly good time to cut taxes now. Well, um, it's uh, and, and you well, know it's it's always a good time to give the coal and gas industries a boost, and it seems that um, now is a particularly good time to give gas a bit of a boost. Yeah. So, well, indeed, all the hallmarks of a boondoggle, but there, but there it is. Um, but there it is. Um, but there it is. Yes. So it's sort of we we do seem. I'm. I'm I'm keeping an open mind because I'll be. I'm genuinely interested to see what policy work comes out of this process between now and the budget. Whether it is just party like it's 1985, like the global financial crisis never happened, like there is no debate about whether or not the sort of the, the fundamentals of economic thinking that have been in place since the Second World War need some revisit revisitation in the light of events. Um, Look, it is possible that they will just stand up and in October and party like it's 1985. It's looking terrifyingly like that may happen. But anyway, yes. let's let's see, David. Let's, let's see. see. A question has come in from one of our viewers, which I think is a wonderful question. Great. Which is, to what extent this man is like Trump? 
Okay. Um, yes. Well, I, I, I say in the essay that uh, I have seen with my own eyes, uh, I have seen the Prime Minister try on a Trump suit. I've seen him pop it on, yep. uh, go for a little wander about in it, see yeah, if that fits. works. Crunch, uh, yep. Cuffs. All the, all the yep. bizzo. Uh, and, and I've seen him take it off again because I don't think he thinks that really does work in the Australian context. Um, I think there are some elements of Trumpism that that you can see in Morrison's approach and instincts. Uh, I do think, and there's, there is a section in the essay about uh, Morrison kind of uh, sort of fiddling with the dials on sovereignty and on nationalism and, uh, and on, on sovereign capability and on Australian exceptionalism, which is, is mildly... Trump-esque. A bit of a sniff uh, of Trump, yes. Little, yes. There's, he's, I, I, I think I say in the essay that he tried on the Trump suit, he took it off. I think it's still in the wardrobe, the Trump suit. I don't think it's been sent to the cleaners or to the tip. I think it's in the wardrobe still. It may be, it, it could be called upon, but I think his judgment, his, his sort of judgments about how one does a version of authoritarian populism in the Australian context are some of the more interesting manifestations of his own prime ministership. He's still working out a language for all of that stuff. He doesn't want to be a carbon copy of Trump. He really doesn't, genuinely. I don't think he does. Uh, I think he wants to be his own thing. And, in fact, do you, you guys listening on may remember... Um, the, the treasurer somewhat rashly at the press club a couple of weeks ago said, uh, mentioned that his heroes were Thatcher and, oh, yes. and Reagan. And the Prime Minister got quite annoyed by that, that one would be looking to uh, sort of uh, war horses of the, of the past to articulate one's philosophy. And he, uh, and rarely because he and Josh Frydenberg, I think, have genuinely have a good relationship and get on well. Uh, the, the the treasurer was rebuked, in fact, by the prime minister for these for this thought crime. So it's kind of like, I think, the, the short answer. Sorry, a bit of raving. The short answer to the Trump question is, he's tried on the suit. It's in the wardrobe. It hasn't gone away yet. But I don't think he's Trump. Genuinely, I don't think he's Trump. And I think, in some respects, he's quite different. And to return to the whole enterprise of the quarterly essays, that suggests to me that this is a country in which truth has a bit more traction still than in the United well, States. Well, look, God, help us, David. I mean, seriously, look, look at America. Look at it. It's sort of, it's so terrible. It is so terrible. Uh, that kind of, that, that, that coarsening, that polarisation, it is terrifying. It is absolutely terrifying. You know, the greatest, one of the greatest countries in the world is, is in the most horrendous tailspin at this point in time. And we in, Amer we in Australia think, well, we import some of those, well, we import the culture wars, we import the sort of media climate, we import many things from America, but we are not America. Thank God we're not. And, uh, and I think we as a society need to really double down on this idea and resist this sort of coarsening, polarisation 
uh, people uh, people proposing things in order to fight about them rather than resolve them. We absolutely need to resist this with every fibre of our small Australian beings. And the United States doesn't have you, doesn't have quarterly essays. <laughs> and don't they feel that lack? Don't they? They do. They do. Yes. They wake up every morning knowing that there's something missing. <laughs> Catherine Murphy and quarterly essays, the end of certainty, Scott Morrison and pandemic politics. Thanks, Catherine, very much. Do another one soon, quick, please. Yes. Oh. <laughs> well, I think you need to do one, don't you? I think that's, I think that's the situation, is it oh, not? I can't keep on assassinating no. Australian political leaders. <laughs> I'm arguing, as I've argued tonight, for kindness, for calmness, for gentleness. Yes, yes quiet, I think. Quiet. I think you praised me for quiet, did you not? Anyway, if we're saying Deadly goodbye... Quiet, I think is the expression. Thank you to everybody for enduring us, really, um, and this conversation for the last hour. That's more than kind and delightful that you've all come. Thank you. And thank you. See you soon. Bye. To, to everybody that's here, let's cheer David and Catherine on behalf of Black Ink, on behalf of The Guardian, and indeed on behalf of Readings. It's been a treat to have you all here. How lucky were we, guys? Come on. <laughs> Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Bye. Thank you. See you later. Stay safe. You can stream previous episodes of the Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. While there, you can sign up to our e-news or to receive the free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production and music for this podcast was provided by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded.